Hi, this is Alan Shartok, and I'm delighted today to be in conversation with Dr. Ron Edsforth. Dr. Edsforth is a professor of history and former chair of globalization studies in the Masters in Liberal Arts Studies, MALS, program at Dartmouth College. He taught American history at Michigan State University, Skidmore College, Hamilton College, and MIT before coming to Dartmouth in 1993. Ron has written extensively on the economic development and political culture of the United States since the Civil War. He established his reputation in American history with a series of books about the significance of the automobile in the making of our nation's extraordinary consumer culture. In the 1990s, he was a major contributor to two PBS documentary films, America on Wheels and Divided Highways, A History of the Interstate Highways. During the last 10 years, Ron's teaching and scholarly work has focused on histories of globalization and on peace history. He has published essays and presented scholarly papers on neoliberal capitalism and the global proliferation of nonviolent revolution. He is the general editor for Bloomsbury, publishing of the forthcoming six-volume collection of essays titled A Cultural History of Peace. Ron is also researching and writing about the global history of human rights, and especially the rights of the child. We'll talk with Dr. Edsforth about all of that and about his book, The New Deal, America's Response to the Great Depression, Blackwell 2000. But first, welcome Dr. Edsforth. Great to be here, Alan. A long-time listener ever since my wife and I moved from the Midwest to this area. We've been listeners and members of the radio station and think this is one of the greatest uh, public resources in our country, actually. That is very kind of you. It really is. And frankly, it really gets to me to hear that kind of praise because I think the whole group here is really dedicated to what we do. So, Let's start with something that really, Ron Edsforth, comes to my head, and that is the New Deal. I'm a little older now. I mean, when I tell my students that I was alive, A, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, and B, when Roosevelt was president, they don't believe it. We're lucky <laughs> they even know who he is. So the New Deal, it's really an extraordinary point in American history, right? Oh, without a doubt. The New Deal is probably the most creative political force in modern American history, most creative since, in a way, the founding of the republic, because it really was consciously adapting American principles to a different kind of society than America had been, to an urban society, to an industrial society, to a society that had welcomed, uh, and in some cases not really welcomed, but allowed in. Uh, many different kinds of Europeans and the Northwest Europeans and particularly British Europeans who had dominated in the country and had repressed the other people in this country, uh, mainly the African Americans who came as slaves and then their descendants and the Native Americans. And one of the great things I love about the New Deal as someone who grew up in New York State down in Mount Vernon, New York in high school in the Bronx and then can't have been living in upstate New York for so long is that New York was really a leader in the creation of these kind of, we, we call them today progressive policies that did something wonderful that Ronald Reagan ultimately was able to undermine. What it did was show the people of the United States that government could do many good things for them, many good enduring things for them, and that it could do them well, and that it was worth paying taxes to get that done, and in particular, as modern industrial capitalism was rapidly developing, it was important to ensure that those who gained the most from the new system paid the most into the government system that would provide for these new needs, ultimately expressed by Roosevelt in this wonderful document. You seldom hear references to it anymore, but it was the basis for his 1944 campaign, the Economic Bill of Rights adapting the, the idea of rights to a modern industrial society. So right to health care, right to education, one of my favorites, the right to recreation. Where I grew up, and I'm sure you, it was similar for you and people of our generation, there were wonderful public pools, public beaches, public golf courses, public playgrounds. The idea was that recreation was something people who lived in cities and towns had to have as a right and that they didn't have to pay the country club fees or the swimming pool and beach fees, beach club fees, that it was for everybody. And 
New York State because we had not just Governor Roosevelt, but even before him, Governor Smith, sort of laying out this kind of approach to things, has, has still has this amazing sort of infrastructure that provides recreation for people who have very little money. Ron Edgeworth, let me ask you this. This is a very dangerous time when we got the New Deal because there were other people out there who could have led us down the path of Russia or Germany or now Venezuela. It was a very scary time because there were all kinds of despots out there trying to get their claws in. Well, Huey Long was probably the most famous of the time in the United States. The senator from Louisiana who ran the state as a kind of personal fiefdom and had almost complete political control there. And people thought he was a Democrat, that he was uh, going to run for president in 1936 and he might threaten Roosevelt. But in the book I wrote about this, uh, I, w- I, w- I had the advantage that I taught a seminar on the Great Depression, and I, a senior seminar, and Dartmouth alumni had been donating microfilm runs of their local newspaper to our library. So in addition to sources that I could track down myself, uh, and from other places, my students, would every, every uh, term I taught it, would do research in these newspaper archives. So I got a picture of what the country was going through because this book was designed to be a college textbook. I, I put most of it in an appendix as in a chronology. But you go through the, uh, especially the worst months of depression in the winter of 32-33, and what you find are these just daily incidents of amazing disorder, the farmers stopping produce going to market, taking over courthouses to prevent foreclosures, all through what we'd call the red states today, taking very radical action, direct action in the cities, often all organized by a small but devoted group of radicals and communists, the unemployed councils protesting especially evictions, and in some cases, thousands of people fighting with police. In Chicago, there was one week where it was a, a week of fighting against police. And this kind of just are in amazing places, the, taking over the public buildings in Seattle, taking over the county buildings in Salt Lake City, Mormons, taking over public buildings. And that was just amazing stuff to discover. And then racial violence, of course, racial scapegoating, racial violence and horrible lynching, as bad as the worst wave of lynching back in the 1890s, where black men in particular were publicly hanged in front of jeering crowds. They were burned at the stake, their charred body parts and teeth taken as souvenirs, and no repercussions. That was the culture of the time. Then you had people like Father Coughlin, and books have been written, what would happen if Hitler won? Um, you know, the question to me has always occurred, what would have happened if a Huey Long hadn't been assassinated or, right. or was able to move ahead? Right, right, because the fear and irrationality was sort of in the saddle at the time. And what Roosevelt did, it was a genius thing, a rhetorical thing that historians often have sort of fallen in the trap of following his lead, saying the only thing we had to fear is fear itself. Oh, no. And he knew, and all his advisors and Eleanor knew, that, no, the country is literally falling apart. I mean, he was the victim of an attempted assassination, killed Mayor Cermak at the time. That was in February of 1933. He was going through a crowd there, and he surprised a lot of people who, who didn't really understand his character, especially his post-polio character, that rather than speeding off as a secret service, Cermak had been working next to the car. He took Cermak in the car with him, put his arm around him, and said, we're going to the hospital and wouldn't leave until the doctors told him Cermak would live. And in fact, Cermak lived a few days but then died. So he was an incredibly dynamic political leader. He knew how to use that new media, the one we're on right now, radio, to great effect. Many people think he gave fireside chats virtually every week. He didn't. He gave very few. He gave them just a few times a year. But when he did, they were huge events. Everybody listened. And he spoke to people as my friends. And the first one on the banking crisis is just an amazing thing. It's like a lesson on how the banks work and why they failed and why we won't open them until they'll be sound. And right away, people were taking the money they had started to hoard and put them right back in the banks, and the banks were sound again. Now, when presidents are raided, often, but not always, Lincoln comes out first. Roosevelt is right up there. Was he greater than Lincoln? 
Well, I think Lincoln solved the greatest crisis because the Union was going to be torn apart and there was going to be a slaveholding Confederate States of America. And he saw us through that war. And I had to say, I, mean, I want to say something on the air here. I find it absolutely despicable that people in this region in particular drive around with Confederate flags on their car because it dishonors the names of all those veterans that are on the monuments in the center of every little town and village in this part of the country, the guys who went off and fought to save the Union and to be flying that slaveholders' republic banner. So I think Lincoln, you know, that, that was a triumph that you can't underestimate. And beyond that, Lincoln's own speech writing was just phenomenal. The second inaugural is one of the greatest pieces of American literature, I think, actually. But Roosevelt has to be ranked right up there because the crisis we faced in the Great Depression threatened the disintegration of social order and in many ways was more threatening than the Second World War because we still had the two oceans that separated us from the zones of killing, the mass killing that was going on elsewhere in the world. And so, in a way, Roosevelt, I think his greatest achievement is getting the country through the Depression, but then again, getting us into the war and on the side of the Allies, and especially Britain, and providing what many Americans, you know, led by Charles Lindbergh and people like that, did not want to stop fascism, stop Nazism, stop Japanese imperialism in the Pacific. And the world would have been just a completely brutalized place if that had not happened. So it was a major juncture in American history. Ronald Edsforth has written a book called Problems in American History, The New Deal, Response to the Great Depression. Ron, so, so you just said something which raises a number of questions for me. Obviously, Roosevelt got us started in the Second World War. Well, no, the Japanese did. In a way, what Roosevelt did, yeah, you were right, actually. Roosevelt took us from a position of being, by law, neutral. The Neutrality Acts of the mid-30s were laws he did not want to sign, but Congress wanted to pass with overwhelming majorities. They were essentially laws to keep us from doing what we had done in World War I, because by that point in time, the early, mid-1930s, our entry into World War I had been seen as a, as, as a pretty much a disastrous failure. So he was able to convince Congress through a series of steps, uh, trading bases for destroyers, uh, Lend-Lease program, get so, us to, to so, aid the British. So, Ron, he knew where he was going. He definitely wanted to go right in and help the British right away. Right. But he knew that he couldn't possibly do it with the Congress and public opinion the way it was. So... The second greatest political feat he achieved was to steer us to the position where we were ready to go in. The Japanese, in a way, did him a favor by attacking us. And then, for reasons never explained, and Adolf Hitler made political decisions that certainly didn't make much political sense, Germany declared war on the United States on December 8th. Megalomaniacal is the, is the answer. He was. I mean, Hitler was. And he, maybe he was just being a good, loyal ally to his Axis partner Japan, yeah. you know, but that meant Roosevelt didn't have to go because it's, it's not so clear it would have been easy to get the United right. States to go into war against Germany when it was already going to war against Japan. And yet, Ron, when uh, Churchill and Roosevelt and the Allies all took a look at this, they said Germany first, not Japan. Oh, without a doubt. And that's why we, in World War II, our armed forces used this island hopping strategy, which we were essentially is not for the men in them but small battles spaced out in time while the major effort was going to be concentrated in Europe to defeat Germany. And, of course, everybody who studies World War II realizes without the Soviet Union on our side... No question. And, and, and taking these enormous losses, 20 million Russians killed in the war, that Germany wouldn't have been easily defeated. They had the best military and they were determined fighters, and they would have been very difficult to defeat if they didn't have to fight on two fronts like they did. Now, in your very worthy book, The New Deal, you talk a great deal about the particular parts of the economic program, and yet I just have the feeling that we should all recognize, and I know you do, that the war played a significant part in Roosevelt's economic success. Oh, without a doubt, because suddenly, you know, the by far the largest component of the gross national product is federal spending on the war. 
And everybody who could work, not as in Britain, where civilian men and women were drafted to work, women were drafted to work in Britain during World War II, but they were under kind of social pressure to contribute to the war effort. So you had people working, you had full-time plus overtime wages pouring in, you had the consumer economy shut down, but for most essentials, so a lot of pent-up demand and pent-up savings. And when that's released at the end of the war, then you get the emergence of what was still not really that well-formed by the end of the 1930s, this suburbanized urban America where the automobile was the key link between parts of people's lives. And it was built out incredibly fast in those 25 years after World War II. Thanks to Henry Ford, of course. But the question to you, Ron, is whether or not Henry Ford understood what was going on around him. Well, you take us back to the early 20s. Without the Model T, the mass automobility, as I called it in the books I wrote about that, mass automobility would have come much later. And did he understand what was going on around him by the time of World War II? I don't know. But we do know, and this is pretty amazing stuff. And I had a student, Dartmouth student, who got this stuff published, one of his articles in Nation magazine on this, that American bombers didn't bomb the Ford-owned plants in Germany that produced vehicles for the Wehrmacht and did that all through the war. So did he know that was going on? He, he may not have known that was going on. But Now, Henry Ford, of course, was a scurrilous anti-Semite. Yes, he, he forced um, his dealers to sell an anti-Semitic newspaper or actually just distribute it. And the Elizabeth Zion crap trap right. that, he, that he put out. Right. So Henry Ford was the old capitalism juxtaposed to sort of what was happening in the country that Roosevelt had to bring us all around to? Well, in a way, that may be too simple. Henry Ford was iconoclastic in the way that he built up this personal company. His family owned the Ford Motor Company, which was this gigantic company. And General Motors was the more successful company over the long run. That was a modern corporation. You know, it worked for its stockholders. It never lost money, even the worst year of the Great Depression. And that was one of the reasons why it was so admired and copied all around the world that it had done that. And it developed this whole idea of multi-divisional management and branching out into different forms of consumer goods and ultimately just anything that would make a profit gathering under one kind of management. And ultimately, and I did teach business history from Michigan State all the way through Dartmouth in my career, I would point out, let's look at the biographies of the business leaders. And it shifts from inventors and engineers, people like Henry Ford, really, people who knew the products and they were proud of the products, they wanted to make better products, to people in marketing and then especially finance. And ultimately, we live in the era of finance capitalism. And the greatest inequalities are being produced by this form of capitalism. So let's go back to the premises of the book, The New Deal, America's Response to the Great Depression. Let me ask you this. We had a Supreme Court at the time. They weren't in favor of Roosevelt's programs. The majority was, that's for sure. And this is what really brings the New Deal to a faster conclusion than would have occurred after Roosevelt's landslide victory in the, in the election of 1936. There had been efforts to force on all federal judges except the Supreme Court through legislation, and it had failed earlier, age 70 retirement with this argument, the one that I think applies to the election today, actually, that you need to have people who are in touch with the experiences of the younger generation take over at a certain point so that they are making their judgments on that basis. Roosevelt clearly just wanted to get his legislation through the Supreme Court, and almost the big pieces of the New Deal go to the Supreme Court. So he proposes legislation that is going to allow him to add a new justice for every justice that stays on beyond age 75. Otherwise known as the court packing plan. Court packing. And since the Constitution does not stipulate how many justices there should be, and there have been times when there, you know, when somebody died or something, there's, there, there, there may be eight, there's been, I think, 10 or more than at least one time, it was possible to conceive of a court that might have 12 members, 13 members, if nobody wanted to retire under this. Well, that just raised a whole storm, and it really raised up something that 
Roosevelt's critics had been charging him of since the first day, the first hundred days of the New Deal, that he was really a dictator in disguise. And he couldn't work within the system, so he would radically change it, and he would basically run the Supreme Court through this court packing so, plan. So uh, that's a great jumping-off point for just a second, a little deviation here. Uh, was he a dictator in disguise? No, not at all. He might have been. He had the famous newspaper columnist Walter Lippmann wrote a whole series of columns while he was waiting to become president, and that was back when we had the inauguration in March that you may have to take dictatorial powers in order to deal with what's happening in the country. No, he wasn't. But he was not someone who was always open with people around that he worked with. And he had learned this way of getting through life when he was a young man, and he never really abandoned it. And that made him seem devious to quite a few people. But I think the main thing was that he wasn't a dictator because so many people supported the initiatives that he and his administration well, proposed. Well, to be fair, Ron, so many people supported every major dictator who ever lived. I know where you're going. Well, yeah, right. But they didn't go to a Congress elected by those same people and get those things approved in a constitutional manner by law. And, and I think that's really significant. So you have these amazing majorities. I mean, I think I'm right. I'd have to look it up in the book to be absolutely sure. But I think there's only 17 or 19 Republicans in the Senate after the election of 1936. That's amazing. That shows that his appeal was in the urban areas. It was in the rural areas. It was in the mining states. It was across the country. And it was appeal that trickled down and influenced the shape of the congressional party. I think the, the margin in the House was they had 75 percent of the House of Representatives as well. He wanted this court packing plan, but he would have been just as happy if one of those older justices had retired. Which is what happened. Right. What do they call it? Uh, something. Time. time saved nine. Yeah. So actually, Robert switched. One of them switched. They didn't retire. He switched his vote. And then he began to win these 5-4 decisions. The whole issue disappeared. And at the same time, you have to say, the war began to loom in Europe. And he definitely shifted his attention away from the domestic scene. But by that time, American capitalism had been transformed into this kind of social democratic, our own version, not like Europe, but social democratic. If you want to call it a welfare state, fine. But it was also welfare for farmers, subsidies for business. It was a kind of mixed system, a mixed economy was the term I learned when I was undergraduate, a mixed economy in which the federal government had come in to save capitalism. And there's no doubt capitalism was finished. I often argued with the economics professors about this. I said, when markets don't clear, you can't sell the inventory for anything. What do you mean clear? Markets will clear under old liberal economic theory and neoliberal. If you lower the price low enough, you'll find buyers. Well, they couldn't find buyers for what they were producing at any price. So that says it failed. Then you had the old banking system without much security built into it. Many, many state banks, as well as the national banks under license by the federal government, they were all kind of independent units. They started failing literally by the thousands. And by the week Roosevelt took office, the system was so crippled that the 12 constituent banks of the Federal Reserve System that still exist, they would not loan money to each other because their reserves were so low and they were feared that they would have to close their doors. So it was kaput. I mean, the system was really kaput at that moment. And it is an amazing thing that by the end of that spring, it was up and running again. Roosevelt was called by some conservatives in this country, a traitor to his class. Oh, he was. <laughs> he was. There's this wonderful little, uh, it's more like a pamphlet, 40-page book I always had my students read, published in 1935-36 by a, a journalist named Marcus Childs. It was titled, They Hate Roosevelt. And he had been going to country clubs and debutante balls and big cocktail parties and just taking down what people were saying. And there were a lot of these rich people saying. Who Mark Marcus Childs was. Mark Marcus Childs. Was who taking, then went on to write for the New York Post. Right. When it was a liberal good institute. Right. Well, he was taking down quotes from these people saying, you know, I wish somebody would shoot the president. And we'd be better off if he was dead. You know, and they literally hated him. I mean, after all... He wanted, at the time of the war, he wanted a 100% maximum rate on the highest incomes. 
he got 90%, actually, but steeply progressive taxes. Eleanor was from a much a richer wing of the family. He was not particularly well off himself. He borrowed money from Eleanor to set up Warm Springs, actually. But he was all for the heavy estate tax, which has a, has a long history of proponents in the United States. Recently, I think the New York Times ran something about... Meaning what you could leave for your kids, right? Yes, right. That what, what you leave at the end of your life, a lot of it will be taken away over a certain amount, right? And in fact, most of it will be taken away. He was all for that. That idea actually goes back to Andrew Carnegie, who urged in an essay called Wealth in the North American Review in 1888, you know, that, okay, you earn the money, but that doesn't mean the next generation should get it all. In fact, Carnegie argued it would spoil them (laughs) if they did get it. So for the people from his own class, Roosevelt was a traitor. And and famously, at the last rally of uh, 1936 campaign in Madison Square Garden, packed to the rafters, where he's calling his enemies, in a particular American language, Tories, right? The language of the revolution, uh, these Tories here. And and he finally says, there are people across the country who hate me. This is a close quote. Who hate me. I welcome their hatred. And the crowd goes crazy. And he calms them down. He says, I want them to know that in my first term, they have met their match. In my second term, they will meet their master. <laughs> and the crowd goes completely crazy. So when I hear this stuff about Democrats today saying, oh, we want to bring the whole country together, unite the country, that was not the way to make a big majority. And you know, you're the expert in the pragmatic politics of the United States. It's all about making majorities, whether it's in the electorate or in the legislatures and so forth, right? So how do you make a big majority? It's a presumption. There's a split. There's going to be a majority of it. You've got to bring most of the people, most of the people who work for wages, and a lot of them at that time who worked for salaries, who had experienced desperation and and mental breakdowns in the the Great Depression, they were all being pulled into the Democratic Party by Roosevelt. In that election, he got no money from any rich donors. The biggest contribution he got was from the United Mine Workers Union and John L. Lewis. In 1940, same thing. The biggest contribution came from the first political action committee, which was set up by labor to support Franklin Roosevelt. So we had class politics very clearly at that time from the 30s into the first half of the 40s when the Democrats established this majority that you know lasted down until the 1970s, essentially. I have a couple of questions for you, but let's continue along those lines. Not only did the rich sort of former mega-rich capitalists hate him and call him a traitor to his class, but the communists hated him too. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because he was showing that you didn't need some kind of Bolshevism or radical revolution to deal with the problems of people and do it in a way where people participated and felt like they owned what they were working on and in. And so this would be something the Republicans would hold against him for to the present. He was a great promoter of unions, and along with Senator Wagner from New York, you know, and and again, New York is just producing this progressive ideas. The union movement grows tremendously, and it's a movement that puts out the troops at election time. And I remember when I was a graduate student out at Michigan State University, I would go down to the UAW Hall in Lansing, get my assignment, and walk up and down streets. And I can remember then that you could see things starting to fall apart because one election I was given a street in South Lansing that wasn't paved, didn't have a sewer system, and I was knocking on doors, and about every other person was saying, why should I vote for anybody? Look where I'm living here. I'm living in a shack on a dirt street in a a city that hasn't got proper infrastructure. Okay, so I think we need to know now a little bit more about you. How old are you? I'm 70 years old. So you're 70 years old. I will tell you, my dad was an English immigrant, working class lad from Blackburn. He came here when he was a young boy, right after World War II, or World War I, excuse me, in 1920. Both of his parents died within a few years. He was an orphan. They had tried getting jobs at mills in New England, got on a boat in Providence and went to New York City. And he never told us much about what those first couple of years were like, but he ended up living 
with a Scottish couple, the Burks, who were my godparents. Oh, interesting. And he worshipped Franklin Roosevelt. I mean, literally worshipped. He was in the Army Air Force in World War II. So I've asked you how old you were. I ask you that because I'm interested in whether or not historians, as you are an excellent historian, need to be in touch with having lived through it to some degree or lived shortly thereafter it as opposed to teaching it out of a book somewhere. Well, that would mean there would be very few historians who were covering anything before the middle of the 20th century. That's right. So, no, obviously, I don't think that as a historian. I mean, the collection I'm just finishing up right now was there's 57 scholars, and it's a cultural history of peace, antiquity to the modern era. So, no. Those uh, people didn't live through. What's very important to recognize is that whatever happens in the past, it happened. And it never changes. History is the response to questions we have in our current present, and that present is changing all the time, about what happened in the past. And that may lead us to different conclusions just because we're we have a different perspective today than people 100 years ago had on, on the question. But I don't get it. I don't get it. You said if it happened, it happened. It just happened. A set of facts, they happened, no, right? Well, what happened is maybe different from facts. Right. Facts are things we can discover and verify. What happened, happened. And we might not know everything that happened. And well, we, probably, right. we probably don't know anything well, but a small part of what happened. Well, but Ron, how many PhDs in history have been written by somebody who says, okay, this is a conventional wisdom about what happened, and I, in order to get a thesis out of this, I'm going to have to turn it on its ear. I mean, in other words... The set of facts, the facts were there, things happened, and yet entirely different interpretations of what happened. But it's possible that a new trove of facts were followed. Yeah, it's also possible. Like, 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 like it's also was, possible it was baloney. Well, well, like I told you, nobody had ever looked at these local newspapers. You can read these 800-page works on the New Deal, yeah. and they talk about the interanium, and you, you don't realize what chaos is going on at the local level. I was just sort of lucky to get that. So you can have that. The question you ask may lead you to a different set of facts that's been laying there. In the case of some ancient history, it might have been laying there for 1,000, 2,000 years. Yeah, we see it all the time. But the question, the question is different. So the questions you're asking are really the key to what you're going to be writing about and the way you're going to write about it. So... You know, as a 70-year-old, I ask questions that are shaped not only by my life experience, but the work I've done in history. And a lot of those questions are different. The younger generation of historians that I've worked with at the various colleges, but particularly I've been at Dartmouth for 25 years or more, they come in with a whole set of different questions, right? And so we get this history about the Native American and the details of it, not just some big gloss on it or or to totally turn it on its head, some triumph of manifest destiny in the advance of liberty, as it was told in the late 19th century, but a real a sense of the different peoples who are Native Americans and how they interacted with each other and how, like, we have a historian at our college, Colloway, he's just wrote a book about Native America in the age of Washington, and he and his colleagues in the field, they, you know, they've discovered this world that most I'd like to call them Euro-Americans, but they also call it Latin Americans probably too, it would be included in that, didn't realize that there was trade going on across the continent before the Europeans ever got here. There were established trade routes. You know, There were diplomatic relations. When, when mm-hmm. the Europeans did arrive, they sent ambassadors to the courts in Europe because they had to deal with these invaders who came and who were threatening them, you know? So that, that kind of thing is to cover. Obviously, African-Americans have developed a history of their presence in this continent. It's so different from the way it was taught. I remember going to the Mount Vernon Public Library. I loved it. was Carnegie Library, you know, and it, I was doing just what Carnegie wanted. Carnegie, class. for those who, who don't know, gave much of his money to establish libraries all over America. And all over the English-speaking world, actually. And so working-class boys like himself could go and educate themselves. So I was sucking up all the history. And there was no real sense of what the experience of African Americans had been, particularly because of the civil rights movement. And that's one of the things we learned. It's a life experience as well as something I've learned as an academic, that mass movements change the political 
culture of societies and America. And none in, in our recent history is more important than the civil rights movement and the way it inspired other movements because really they modeled themselves on that. And for me now as a peace historian, it's very important to emphasize a nonviolent political action, very strategic thinking and tactics, all of it plans out and then spreading that knowledge through networks that are now worldwide. And you know, we look around the world in the recent years, who would have guessed and I know because I was director of War and Peace Studies at Dartmouth when it was established in 98 until 2004, that nobody could have guessed that not only the Soviet empire countries, the satellite countries, were going to collapse, uh, but that the Soviet Union would collapse. And that basically it would take place in a series of nonviolent revolutions that swept from the Berlin Wall, literally, all the way out to Mongolia in a matter of three or four years. And one of the reasons they were able to do that was by that time, there was a global network of nonviolent strategists who had been promoting this way of changing the world. And the first real triumphs were the overturning of the Greek generals, the Spanish dictatorship, the Portuguese dictatorship in the 70s. And then you keep going on it, going on people power in the Philippines in the 80s. Of course, you have failures like Tiananmen Square, the failures elsewhere. And I'm sorry, Ron, but you do have Putin, the KGB general, who seems to have run his country much the same way that the Soviets were doing. Right. And I, if I can, I, I would like to put this in context. Because one of the things that peace journalists do is say we need the historical context. So when I was trying to teach myself peace history... I enrolled in a graduate seminar at the University of Oslo in 2007 during the summer. And they were running a summer school, international summer school there and uh, other subject, graduate, undergraduate. And I met a lot of Russians. And we talked about what was going on in Russia a lot by that time. And what they explained was the collapse of the Soviet Union was very rapid. And the Americans rushed in with a team. Jeffrey Sachs, famously one of the members, now sort of regrets what they did there, but tried to, like, force capitalism down their throats in a way and didn't have a real good sense of what the difficulties would be. So you have an extraordinary thing happen. For the first time, certainly in modern history, a developed industrial nation sees its life expectancy decline for 10 years, right? So believe me, that has to be incredibly demoralized. I spoke about the Native Americans. Because of the fishermen who were landing on the New England coast in the late 16th century, early 17th century, the diseases that Native Americans were not immune to were caught by all the people up and down the coast. So when the pilgrims and Puritans came, they were encountering populations that had been reduced perhaps 90% by disease, demoralized populations, really, a lot, lots of them. So this is what was happening. Russia was demoralized. You had Yeltsin, who was a drunk and incompetent president, and you had a desire for turning it around. So when I was talking to these Russians in 2007, Putin was extremely popular because things had been getting steadily better. And I've always taught this. I, I believe in taking the big, long view of things and underlying factors. Optimism stems partly from the sense that life is getting better, and we sense that if people live longer in each generation over time. So one of the things that promotes the optimism of the 20th century is that our life expectancies have increased amazingly. You know, at birth, it was 43 years in 1900 in the United States, and childhood disease was devastating, of course. But we live so much longer on the whole now. Twice as long. Yeah, that this to me is just a fundamental part of human psychology is to feel better about the way things are running. Organized. So this accounts for Putin's popularity. Right, right. Okay, though, and then the other thing I wanted to say is, yeah. and this is from Ambassador Jack Matlock, our ambassador under Reagan to the Soviet Union. We should have never pressed NATO right up to the Russian borders mm -hmm. because that was taken to be, in sort of traditional Russian terms, not just Stalinist or, or communist terms, the efforts of the Western Europeans to prevent Russia from having a great power status in the world. And now, so we're in this place now where we have this crisis, and we have this crisis in our politics where groups have really firmly identified themselves by 
their ethnic racial background, their gender background. And we were sort of warring with each other over this. They're not talking about the kind of issues that animated the New Deal in the same way that they talked about it back then. The difference between 1930s America and now is what I think must be called the empire. The 800 bases that we operate around the world and the military budget, which absorbs anywhere from 60 to 63% of discretionary spending every year. And we don't hear anything about it, right? Congress passes a $1.3 trillion nuclear modernization program. Did we hear about that debate when it happened a year ago? No, we didn't hear about that. So 5.7 million for a wall, it shuts down the government, but we don't debate that. We build infrastructure, the big base. A lot of these bases are small, admittedly. They're surveillance bases they're with embassies. But when we build a big base, we build a city. We build an American city there, complete with roads, suburban housing, shopping centers, restaurants, okay. everything. I want to interrupt. And we say, don't build it here, though. Okay, I hear you. So I want to interrupt, Ron. And we're talking to Ron Edsforth. The name of the book is The New Deal, America's Response to the Great Depression. Okay, so now you are Roosevelt scholar. You are also a peace historian. So let's go back to Roosevelt for a moment. He was probably the greatest war maker that this country has ever known, right? And so how do you see that in terms of your peace thesis? Well, I don't think he was a war maker. He got us into World War II. And that That's was, not called being a war maker? No. I think it's quite different than optional war, like Iraq. I think Afghanistan was a necessary war. I think Iraq was clearly optional. Of course you're right. Go you ahead. Know? And so there's that difference. I have colleagues at Dartmouth who are well-known in their field, international relations, that are insisting that the what they call unipolarity, the dominance of the United States militarily in the world, is a stable system. Now, a classic realist will tell you, no, they'll, that other powers will rise. China is obviously one, Russia is another, that will challenge and even unite against the dominant power. You go back to Thucydides, Peloponnesian War. What started the Peloponnesian Wars? The Athenians, who were the powerful state, feared the rise of Sparta, and they started the war. So what is it about? I often tell my students, and this was political history as well, I also taught American foreign policy since 1900. I said, it's about power. And they said, well, you know, what do you mean? Power to do what? I said, the power to make a decision and make it happen. And it can be about anything, right? It can be about oil. It can be about people. It can be about anything. But the United States, in a way, suddenly, unforeseen, had this global power that we now call our, and the word is interesting, our national security interests. Not our national security, but our interests. And these exist everywhere in the world. So we'll talk about Winston Churchill for a moment. One of the things that Roosevelt obviously didn't like about Churchill and why he became the third man at the table after Stalin and all the rest was because he did have an empire, right? That's right. That's right. And Roosevelt was opposed to bringing the, the French and the British back into their imperial countries after they were liberated from the fascists and the Japanese. Because? Because he was a Democrat, essentially, and but also because he believed that the United States would have access, at least his advisors thought this, access to those places in a way that they wouldn't if they were so locked up inside. So he was the empire builder. American history, I'm writing this collection of essays now. I've been writing it on and off for the last couple of years, and I get more and more concerned by this crisis that we're in. An empire as well as a republic, that we've always been an empire, and we've always been a republic. But we often don't recognize the empire and the way it shapes what the republic can do. Right? But, but the left-wing peace activist certainly recognizes an empire. Yes, but that immediately like puts them on a fringe. That immediately marginalizes them, right? You and unless I... we're in a war that is like Vietnam, where it's drawn out and the American casualties are rising fast and it seems endless, that point of view is always being marginalized. An amazing thing happened with World War II because it is remembered as the good war and no place else in the world, including the countries that wanted someplace else like Britain and so forth, is it remembered as the good war. But it's remembered as the good war here because none of the devastation took place here. None of the mass killing and atrocities took place here. And because our economy boomed in a way that it had never boomed ever before for most working people. 
and obviously, and I have to, you have to always remember this, because it did a really good thing. It eliminated Nazism, fascism, and aggressive Japanese imperialism in the Pacific. But of course, I want to interrupt you for a moment. There's a famous quote about the Japanese general, I guess it's Yamamoto, who said, I fear we have woken up the sleeping giant. Well, he had studied in the United States. So he knew he what knew. the potential was. That's exactly right. He knew. He didn't think it was a good idea to attack the United States and give them every reason, you know, the most legitimate reason for war is self-defense, to come into the war with everything they would, they didn't have it at the moment, but everything they would mobilize. But he saw the potential for the empire. Oh, yeah. Well, remember, we had an empire there. The Philippines sure, <laughs> were part of our empire. Sure. Hawaii. I, I was an alumni lecture on a trip to Hawaii, and my lecture was all about the history of Hawaii. I'll tell you a wonderful story that illustrates this. After 9-11... I was teaching my War and Peace since 1900 class, and it was right after 9-11. And the subject came up, and it was a big lecture class. There were about 60 or 70 students in there, and we were talking about what had just happened. And I said, a lot of you have probably been reading, there's been nothing like this since Pearl Harbor. And to me, this justifies a military response, a war against the place that harbored our attackers. And a, a student jumps up in the back of class who had never said anything before this in the class. She was a native Hawaiian woman, and she said, Professor, I must correct you. The Japanese attacked an American naval base in their colony in Hawaii. It was not part of the United States at that time. <laughs> and I said, I stand corrected. You're right about that. And people don't, you know, they don't realize the differences that's an example of a different person with a different perspective seeing the same event, but seeing it in quite a different way that stopped the class dead. You know, it's not it just everybody was like, whoa, that's kind of interesting. You know, I got to think that one through. So how does your book, and we only have four minutes, so you got to go fast. Okay. How does your book, The New Deal, uh, America's Response to the Great Depression, run as forth, how does it, with your very interesting discussion fit into your views on peace. Okay. Quite simply and as pointed as I can be, the New Deal established economic security as the principal role of the federal government in the United States. And that meant for bankers, businessmen, farmers, workers, old people, young people, everybody. And that Economic Bill of Rights that Roosevelt ran on in 1944 was designed to make that happen. World War II ushers in national security. National security has completely pushed economic security out of the priority spot in our politics. Both parties embrace it. And as you know, you say Social Security is the third rail of American politics. National security is something you don't want to stand against, right? Trump thinks he's got it right now, saying we're being invaded by these hordes from Mexico and Central America. He's trying to use that political tool, the national security tool. But this is the reason why every year so much that would be otherwise put into the kinds of programs that the New Deal promoted seems to be denied, and, and the Republicans in particular want to cut the funding for it because it threatens our national security, which is now conceived of not what does it take to protect the United States of America, where we are and living today, but what protects our national interest in having global power, and that is a very expensive proposition. I actually sent a letter to Senator Gillibrand the week she announced, and I've kind of liked Senator Gillibrand, uh, saying, if you want, going out to Iowa, why don't you try something, a lesson from the New Deal? Really come out and say, you want to expand the SNAP program, what we used to call food stamp program, and explain to people it's administered by the Department of Agriculture because it is a subsidy for farmers and the food industry. Well, and I got a minute, but I want to ask you, the whole push now for the Green New Deal, where does that fit into this? Well, I think it's absolutely necessary because of the climate change crisis. I mentioned the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists earlier. They have, in this century, added to what's threatening the human race, nuclear war and climate change. And I think we are still slow in the world, and certainly many millions of Americans are very slow to recognize the existential threat 
that we're facing. And this is a reason why I think we need the younger candidates. They feel it much more deeply than older people do. But not the younger professors, I may say. I'm not sure about that. Depends which department you're talking about. <laughs> Biology perhaps does. You know, environmental science does. But younger... not mine. Not my history profession. Oh, I think academia in general has embraced the idea that we're in a climate crisis and that the United States, rather than being dragged into agreements, this is a place where we could gain so much international political capital, be a leader on this. We are, unfortunately, because I could go on with this for hours, Me out too. of time <laughs> with our friend Ron Edsforth, who wrote the book, The New Deal, America's Response to the Great Depression. It's part of Problems in American History. I urge you all to get it because if you want to understand where we are, you have to understand how this all happened. So thank you, Ron, for your good work and for being here and spending all this time with us. We very much appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Alan. It's been wonderful. We're out of time. We've been talking to Dr. Ron Edsforth, author of The New Deal, America's Response to the Great Depression. Dr. Edsforth has been here with us for this hour, and we are in great appreciation of his work. I'm Alan Shartok. been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.